turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11. Years ago, I watched a movie which was probably one of the best that I'd ever seen Hollywood produce depicting real Christianity. The movie was the life story of Alvin York. Alvin was a wild young man back in 1916, if you could be wild in 1916. But he went around on horseback, getting drunk and carousing with his friends in the hill country of Kentucky and Tennessee. And one night, during a violent thunderstorm, as we had last night, he went out with a gun in his hand, ready to kill a guy that cheated him in a business deal. So he's riding out to kill this guy, lightning flashing all around him, when all of a sudden a lightning bolt hits a tree right next to him, and another one hits him, knocks him off the horse, he and the horse to the ground. Well, he gets up off the ground, and he notices the gun that he was intending for murder was now only good for shooting around corners. The barrel was bent. And the horse, who was still on the ground, its horseshoes were blown off because of the electrical impact. Alvin then gets up and he walks to his family church, which just happened to have a service that night. And he walks in and as, as the congregation and his family watch in astonishment, he walks to the front of the church and he prays to receive Christ. Well, the next day, he goes to the man that he intended to kill, and he asks the man for forgiveness. And from that point on, Alvin York is a changed man. His life is transformed by the gospel. Later, Alvin goes to serve his country in World War I and receives the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, most people receive that after they're dead. He received it while he was still alive because he single-handedly captured 132 German soldiers on his own. And he left the army after that with the rank of sergeant. And now you know the rest of the story, because Sergeant York is a story that reveals the power of the gospel to change lives. The power to take a man from a drunkard and make him a national hero. The power to take a sinner and make them a saint. Each one of us has the tremendous responsibility and privilege to proclaim the gospel to others so that their lives can be transformed like Sergeant York's. 
turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, so that we can look at the proper mystery, the proper might, the proper mission, and the proper motive for the gospel. This is the word of God. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was left, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You know, the disciples didn't get it yet. They still didn't get it. They still thought that Jesus was coming at that time period to set up his kingdom right then and there. They thought that he should be king and rule over Israel and run Rome out of town. We saw that last time I preached. In fact, we looked at this passage. John 6.15 says this, that after feeding the 5,000, the crowd reacted this way. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again by the mountainside alone. Notice he rejects the desire of the crowd for him to be king. He also did this. He also did this in Mark 13. As the disciples were looking at the temple and glorying in the glories of the temple, he looked at them and he said, this temple will be destroyed. He prophesied that to them. And you know, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and many were crucified. Thousands were crucified. When Jesus died on the cross, the disciples' hope for the restoration of Israel was totally crushed. Luke 24, 21 shows the despair of the disciples. It says this, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. You see what the disciples were doing? They were in despair. You know, they were hoping for Jesus to come and restore Israel, for him to be king, and now he was dead, and they didn't know what to do. They were in total despair. Think about that. They had followed Jesus for three years, and now he was gone. They're wondering, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? But now, here in this passage, Jesus is resurrected, and now the disciples have the hope that is restored to them, the restoring of the kingdom of Israel at that time. And notice in verse 7, 
They ask about the timing of the event. Look at what it says. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus reveals to his disciples that speculation concerning the end time events and the timing of those events are not to be their concern. Luke 12, 40 says this, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And in the context of that passage, it's talking about Jesus coming as a thief in the night. And when does a thief come? When you least expect it, right? I've had that happen to me before. I remember customizing a van when I was in the Air Force, putting speakers in the paneling. I mean, I, I had decked this thing out. I, I had a console over the driver's seat with a CB in it. And also, cutting-edge technology. I had gone from an 8-track tape player to a cassette tape player. Can you imagine? I was on the edge of technology. So I'm going to visit a friend after fixing up this van, right? And I go visit a friend. I had an alarm system on the van. And I go in and I think, you know what? I don't need to turn alarm on. I'm only going to be gone for 15 minutes. So you guessed it. I go in the house, come back out 15 minutes later. Everything's gone. And not only that, the paneling was ripped up. The console was dangling from the ceiling. I was in despair. <laughs> but when did the thief come? When I least expected it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. They were not going to know the day or the hour. In fact, Matthew 24, 36 says this. It says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Only God the Father knows the timing. How could the disciples think that they would know the exact hour when God the Father is the only one that would know that time? The problem is, many Christians today fall into the same trap. They focus so much on the end time events and their timing that they even neglect or even hamper the witness of the church. I remember when I was a pastor down in Florida, I had a guy that was a college student. He's a friend of mine. He was uh, working as a custodian uh, in the summertime in our church. And he came to me with a smile on his face with a book in his hand, walked into my office. He found this on one of the shelves. Uh, it was 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. The problem is, and the reason why he had a smile on his face, it was 1992. Okay? So he, he brings this book in, and we just start looking through it, kind of laughing, because this guy that wrote the book gives exact dates for different um, events, like Armageddon. He would say, March 12, 1988, and then the rebuilding of the temple, January 5th, 1988. I mean, he had that much detail for the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, everything was in detail. Going exactly against what Jesus told his disciples not to do is what he did. 
He spent all that time writing that book, speculating about all those dates, right? When he could have done something like write a book on the gospel. But he didn't. You know, we have a book on the shelf back there. It's called Last Day's Madness. Um, It's written by Gary DeMar. And one of the quotes in the book, he says this, The church has been crying wolf for too long. We have been crying wolf for hundreds of years, saying Jesus is coming back. And then when he doesn't come back, what do you think the world does? They look at the church and they think, they're a bunch of nuts, right? And then when they hear our message, the gospel, they don't want to hear that either. The, church ha- the world has turned the church off because of our speculation. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to understand the end-time events. David's been teaching that for over a year. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus didn't want us to speculate about the timing of the events. Instead, he wants us to focus on the mission of the church and the power behind that mission. Let's look at... um, Point two, which is the proper might of the gospel. Look at verse 8. It says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word here for power in the Greek is dunamis. Um, That's where we get the English word dynamite. Think about that. You have dynamite in you. Um, I wrote down the words of this song we sang a minute ago. I I was about ready to just jump out of my socks. Um, Indescribable. Uncontainable. Wow. You put the stars in the sky and you know them by name. Do you know how powerful our God is? I mean, that's amazing words, isn't it? That God resides in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. One example, and and think of that. um, You put the stars in the sky and you know them by name. God created the universe. How did he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus rose from the dead. How did he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you one example of that power is seen in the life of peter Uh, when peter was in the courtyard after jesus was arrested you remember that right he was approached by a little servant girl and she pointed at him and said you were with him weren't you and what did he say what did he do no 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 i wasn't he denied it right out of fear Out of fear, he denied Christ. And then he does it two more times. And then, in Acts chapter 2, we see a different Peter. We see Peter standing before 3,000 people and boldly proclaiming the gospel that they 
were guilty of crucifying Christ. Can you imagine standing up in front of 3,000 Jews and telling them that they had murdered Christ? That takes some boldness, doesn't it? That takes some boldness. What was the difference between the fearful Peter and Matthew and the bold Peter in Acts? You know, in Matthew, Peter was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but he was not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see him filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he preached the gospel with boldness. The once faithful, the once fearful denier becomes the faithful defender of the gospel. What changed Peter? The power of the Holy Spirit. Now you might be thinking, well, Mark, he's an apostle. I'm not an apostle. He's an apostle. So the power's different. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now, you can't raise the dead, and you can't heal the sick. That was, that was for the office of the apostle. It wasn't for us. But you have the same Holy Spirit who gives you the ability to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Listen to what Ephesians 1.13 says. In him you also, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, after also believing, you were sealed in him. You hear that? You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Then a little further down in verse 18, it says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? You know, we need to take God at his word. We need to not go by our feelings. We need to take God at his word and, and not allow our unbelief to quench the power of the Spirit in our lives. But you might be thinking, but Mark, I, I can't preach the gospel to others. I, I wouldn't know what to say. Or what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Well, listen, listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He says this, you have a factor here, listen to this, that is absolutely infinite. And what does it matter as to what the other factors may be? I will do as much as I can, says one. Any fool can do that. He that believes in Christ does what he cannot do and attempts the impossible and performs it. God has called each one of us to a mission. And he wants you to face it with faith and not fear. Don't limit God's power with your unbelief. Don't quench the power of the Holy Spirit. Attempt the impossible and, and attempt it by faith in him. It kind of reminds me of Israel when they were crossing the Jordan River. God promised them that he would part the Jordan River before they crossed, right? But they had to fit, put their feet, and I can't believe you guys sang that song. 
incredible. They didn't know that song was going to, I mean, they didn't know I was going to talk about this. Um, God did. Israel had to put their feet in the water before God would part the Jordan River. They had to get their feet wet. They had to trust God enough to say, okay, I'll put my foot in. And then boom, it parted. That's what he wants us to do with evangelism. You know, I remember the first time I gave the gospel. I was like 19 years old. I was fearful. I was worried I'd blow it. You know, I, I prayed and I asked God, give me, give me the ability to do this. You know, give me an opening with this person. And to my amazement, he did. She started talking about spiritual things, which, which I said, here's an opening. God gave it to me. So I started talking to her about the gospel. And, and as I did that, I, I was in amazement at listening to what I was saying because I was like thinking, wow, I didn't know I knew that. God was giving me the ability to give this person the gospel, and he will do the same for you. And when I was finished, I, I had so much joy uh, seeing the power of the Holy Spirit work through me. Um, and I'd only been a Christian for less than a year. So I, I wasn't a pastor, guys. I, I'd been a Christian for less than a year. I didn't even know all the answers. In fact, I didn't even know the questions. But think about this. The early church, most of them were new Christians, right? And they turned the world upside down with the gospel. They were a mighty witness of what Christ had done for them. Now notice, I had to start the process. I had to ask God, give me an opening, right? And then after asking him, I had to pray for an opening, and then I had to start sharing. It's like the people of Israel. I had to put my feet in the water before he parted the Jordan River. And it's the same for you. And li listen to this. Ask God for opportunities each day. Ask God for opportunities. Pray, God, give me an opening with this person. You know, a, a person at work or a person you go to school with or a friend or a neighbor, family or relative. Ask God for opportunities. And I guarantee you that he will give you openings to share the gospel. Well, what we've seen so far is the proper mystery the proper might of the gospel. Now let's look at the proper mission of the gospel. Um, notice what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my theologians. Is that what it says? Hello? No? What's it say? Hello? Witnesses, right? You know, most of us think we have to be theologians, don't we? We think, uh, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to be in trouble. But here it says, what you need to be is a witness. What is a witness? It's somebody who tells about what he's experienced, right? Um, there was a well-known pastor in L.A. He came out of his church one day, and of course this is in L.A., 
he, he came out of his church and a guy was getting beat up right outside of his church by three other guys. And now, I mean, they were beating him up. They were going to kill him. And there's a crowd standing around watching this happen and nobody's doing anything, intervening. So this pastor decides he's going to jump in there. He jumps in and starts pulling these guys off of him and then they start beating on him. Well, finally, the police show up and they arrest the three guys that were beating this guy up and they take him to jail and then they ask this pastor that he needs to come to court to be a witness, to tell what he saw, what he heard, and what he felt. That's what a witness is. And that's what First John says that we need to be. It says this, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our ha hands have handled, declare we unto you. And that's what we do when we're a witness for Christ. The Greek word for witnesses is martyreus. Um, the, the Christians in the first century were so committed to being a witness that many of them died for their faith. And that's where the word martyreus ends up uh, being translated martyr. Think about that. Eleven out of the twelve disciples died a martyr's death in their desire to evangelize the world. And because of their sacrifice and commitment to the gospel, the gospel was spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Acts 17.6 says this, that they turned the world upside down with the gospel. That's amazing. Think about that. They turned it upside down. How did they do that? Because of their sacrifice. They were willing to sacrifice so that the gospel would go forth and impact the nations. Listen to what uh, the missionary David Livingston said about sacrifice. He was, a, he was a missionary to Africa in the 1800s. He said this, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office as missionary. People talk of the sacrifice that I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and the bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with such a word in view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the, with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. 
Well, now we've seen the proper mystery, the proper might, the proper mission. Now let's look at the motive, the proper motive for the gospel. Look at verse 11. It says this, They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So they're just standing there. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. They're just standing there watching. You know, and, and the angels probably are, you know, hey, wake up. What are you doing? You know, just stop, stop staring and get to work. Get to work in what Jesus just called you to do. What did he call them to do? And what was their motive for doing it? It was to be found doing the gospel work when he returned, right? And to be able to say, God, we love you. And we want to do what you called us to do. You know, I, I remember when I was a little kid, my parents would go away for a couple hours and to go do something shopping or whatever. And sometimes I would get a bug and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean the house for them. Now, this only happened a few times. <laughs> but when I did, you know, I'd do all this cleaning and all that, and, instead of playing with the G.I. Joes or throwing the baseball with my brother, you know, I'd do that. And then I'd stand near the front window, and I'd wait. And I'd wait, and I'd keep looking out into the driveway. I was excited for them to come home so I could say, look, look at what I did for you. That's, that's kind of what we should be doing now. You know, because we don't know the day or the hour when Christ will return. He could come right now. Don't listen to people saying, oh, we don't know when he's coming. I mean, that we know when he's coming. He could come right now. And we want to be found doing the work of the gospel out of love for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. That we can have the forgiveness of sins that we can have a totally new, perfect record put to our account. That you see us and can see us every day as perfect and holy and righteous. What a joy, Lord, the gospel is to understand that and to have our eyes open to the truth of the gospel, which is only by grace. Lord, help us to want to share that grace with others help us not to hold on to it help us to rejoice and to want to share it with others father help us not to be dependent upon ourself help us not to be filled with fear but help us to be filled with the boldness of your spirit so that we can go forth from here today and want to proclaim the gospel to our family to our friends 
through all those that we come in contact with. Lord, we thank you that this is a tremendous privilege that we have. Help us to do it for your glory and for your honor. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.